Several years ago, I went on a trip to Hilton Head, South Carolina. And I woke up in the morning really early and I went to the beach. This is something I always do when I am by the ocean because you get to find some really cool stuff in in the morning. And this time I found the best thing ever or the two best things ever. I saw two baby sea turtles make their way to the ocean. They had hatched the night before probably and were stragglers and I got to see them do that little journey and it was just so cute, so fantastic. But I kind of didn't realize at the time Like I knew there were sea turtles there, but I didn't realize they were like right there, right in the middle of this tourist spot and that they were basically coexisting with humans for this short period of time. And when I was watching this turtle go to the ocean, I did see people on the beach. There were dogs on the beach. So I just since then I've been wanting to talk to somebody about sea turtles and just our fascination with them, the science behind them, and of course their threats. So I invited Dr. Christine Figener on the podcast and she is a sea turtle expert, but she is also famous for initiating a straw movement. She is the one who took the video of the sea turtle who had the plastic straw up its nose, which then sparked a movement against single-use plastics, specifically straw, but we t- straws, but we talk about how straw is just a symbol for, for some of the single-use plastics we don't need in our lives, or most people don't need in their lives, I should say. We talk about that in the podcast. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. There's tons of things that you can do to help sea turtles right from your own home, and lots of fun sea turtle facts. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Thank you once again, Christine, for that interview. You can find her at seaturtlebiologist.com. She also has an Instagram, at seaturtlebiologist, and a YouTube page, seaturtlebiologist2. If you want to look her up, her last name is spelled F-I-G-G-E-N-E-R. You can also check the show notes. For things that you can do to reduce your plastic consumption and help out sea turtles by mitigating your effect on climate change, change, you can head over to the show notes or just search fancyscientist.com. I have a blog post and videos about reducing your impact on climate change and about some tips on how to reduce your single plastic use so you can help out the cute little turtles and other ocean critters out there. Thanks again, and I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other. Bye that you know you had to be a biologist to be an ocean explorer or something like that but I yeah pretty much from kindergarten onward I would tell everybody that I would go and and investigate the the yeah the ocean and then I really was a huge fan of humpback whales so that was when other people were you know collecting articles of their 
famous of their favorite boy group, I actually was collecting posters and articles of humpback whales and other whales and dolphins. So that was my big passion. And I was really lucky because I, well, I don't want to call it lucky, but I had the good fortune that I was able to start as an intern in an aquarium in Germany where they had sea lions and dolphins. So I was really early on exposed to, you know, the, the chance to also communicate with a lot of scientists that were marine biologists or behavioral biologists. And I got pretty early on a good idea of what it would take to do the work that I was envisioning of doing. And so pretty much throughout my teens, I was just preparing to enter university to get a biology degree. So that meant I was, for example, aware that the scientific literature is in English. I'm from Germany originally, so I was really keen on you know, getting my English to a level there where I wouldn't be struggling because I think it's already difficult enough to, you know, to study science. So I didn't want to have the issue of, of just, you know, also not being able to communicate it or read it in English. So I went, for example, for an exchange here in the US. And then <laughs> that was really a dumb decision. But in the back in, in Germany, in the days, it was still a, a requirement to have your big Latinum to enter any sciences. So in seventh grade, I had to choose between French and Latin, and I chose Latin because I knew I wanted to be a biologist. By the time I entered university, that requirement was actually gone, and I had wasted seven years of my life on Latin. But hey, you know. It probably helps you out with the genus species name, so whereas I'm totally lost and can't remember them. It's not really, because it's all kind of not, it's fake Latin. It's not real Latin. It's, you know, people's names that have like a little Latin sound and ending. And actually a lot of the, you know, a lot of other rude words are actually from Greek as well. So it's not necessarily always Latin. So, yeah, I mean, it helped with other languages. So I think my English got better. And also now that I know Spanish fluently, I think. And then, yeah, and then I became, then I studied biology as a bachelor's degree and then behavioral sciences and animal ecology for my master's. And that was the moment where I, by chance, ended up as a research assistant in Costa Rica for about half a year. And that is when I fell in love with turtles. I never even considered sea turtles. I don't know why it was never really on my radar. And I just, you know, was a poor student and I wanted to get some field experiences. And that program was at least covering room and board during your stay. And so I went for six months to Costa Rica and it was the most magical experience that I ever had. And I decided then and now, I was like, okay, this is incredible. And I really want to do that for the rest of my life. Because in the, in the meantime, I've actually worked with humpback whales and I still love them. They're great. But the work is very different from working with sea turtles because sea turtles, it's such a close proximity that you have to the animal, right? So it's, it's a huge, massive animal that lives most of its life in the ocean, but it comes onto the beach to nest and during that brief time, you're actually able to approach it without having to sedate it or in, in any other form, restrain it most of the times. And you can still collect a bunch of data, be with that animal, and then it just kind of goes away, goes on its way. You have your data, <laughs> the animal laid its, its eggs. And it's not that easy when you're working, for example, with humpback whales or pretty much any other large animal, even terrestrial, that you have this you know, really close encounter. So it's, it's pretty awesome. And what I really also like about sea turtle work that is really physical. So, you know, I think as a scientist, we always have those moments where we spend a lot of time in front of the computer, analyzing data, 
going to conferences, but then with sea turtle work, it's like, you know, I'm also walking a lot and doing a lot of physical work. It's just part of setting up my field work, which I felt at least with humpback whales, you were like eight hours on a boat, just sitting on your butt, <laughs> looking on the water. So it's not the same, if that makes sense. So there's all kinds of- Oh yeah, totally. That, you know, I'm really passionate about and it kind of all kind of, you know, comes together and sea yeah, it sounds a lot like when you work in Africa and people are like, oh, you're going to get really fit. And it's like, no, I sat in a car all day and drove and looked for animals. I actually got fat. That's well, that's so cool. Can you talk about what your job is like now? Because one of the things I talk about on my podcast a lot is careers. And I talk about how when you get a PhD, you actually spend less time outdoors. But it sounds like you're you're still outside a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, I had a time in my life where I really was opposed to getting even a PhD for exactly that reason that, you know, I wanted to do the fun stuff. I didn't want to be stuck in the office applying for money so my students could go out and have all the fun. And well, I mean, I went back to get my PhD just because I'm, first of all, I'm female. So women, women in science, it's just a little bit more difficult to be taken seriously and then I was also on top of that, I'm working in a very male dominated country, which makes it even harder as a woman. And I, you know, I had many ideas for my own projects and my own initiatives. And I always had to depend to a certain degree on other scientists to kind of give me, you know, I don't know, the air of seriousness, usually professors or people with a PhD. And I said, you know what? why don't I get my own PhD so I don't have to depend on other people so I can be autonomous as a scientist, right? And that was the reason I actually went back to school. And then of course, in those, you know, five and a half years, you're getting a little bit brainwashed by the, by academia, you know, because everybody tries to just like push you into this idea of the only thing you can do with a PhD is becoming a professor. And I was really opposed to that idea, I think. And it was very unhappy and I felt very anxious about it because that was not how I you know that's not the reason I came back for my PhD and that was really not what I was trying to do with my life because I really want to make an impact I try to make you know yeah leave a footprint I'm trying to prevent sea turtle populations from going extinct and I just got this feeling you know yeah I'm a good scientist but how many people are going to read my scientific article right that's not that many and plus how much of an impact does it really leave for the sea turtle population just because I'm going to write in a sentence and it might be used for la 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 doesn't mean it's actually going to be used for so I made this well I don't know if it was a hard decision in the end but I kind of took the leap of faith and said you know what now or never this is why I came to get my PhD I'm just going to fly solo now I'm just going to do my own thing and at this point I had already a nonprofit in place that I had founded with a few people a few years back, but it, we hadn't really worked with it because I didn't have time. And so, yeah, we have now our own projects in Costa Rica, which I'm very proud of. So I'm the scientific lead of a community-based grassroots NGO that is doing conservation work and research. And I'm still spending a lot of time outside because I'm living pretty much right on the project side. So that means I just have probably the well, I have the good luck that I can nowadays choose how much I want to spend, right? So it's not as the necessity. When I was in charge of projects, I had to walk six nights out of seven. So you got really tired mm -hmm. and sometimes, you know, you're really close to burnout. And nowadays it's like, you know, I go out if I want to, if I don't want to, it's also okay. But it's really up to me of like how much I want to 
do the things, right? Of course, I have also nowadays more administrative duties. I'm also having an actual daytime job with a foundation, which is pretty much paying my salary salary. So my project is more my free time, if you want so. But it's really, I try to combine the best of all the worlds. So because I am a scientist by heart and a conservationist, so I really don't want to lose that. But I also think it's so important to communicate science to the broader public. And, you know, and also it, it comes along with a lot of other things because the threats that my sea turtles are facing are not only originating, you know, right on that beach where they're nesting, but it's a systemic issue that needs to be addressed. So that means it's really a global issue that people need to be aware of and made aware of, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I I feel a similar, or I felt a similar transition, and that's why I started this podcast and started moving more towards science communication, because I studied forest elephants, and you're right, like the research can help out the animal and people might read it, but for forest elephants, it's like they're just being shot, they're just being poached, and really... The, the science that would best help them is to understand the human behavior or, or work at a government level to try to make, make that change happen. So with sea turtles, the threats are, there's multiple threats. Would you say that the plastic is the biggest threat to them or, or, or fishing? Well, you know what? Sometimes I find it difficult to rank threats because they're all biggies. Yeah. And it probably depends on the population, on the you know geographic location, on the species, what might be the bigger one in, in that certain area. Oh, I- <laughs> Sorry, he was distracting me. I had to put him down. And yeah, so I mean, the big five, is it five? Well, the big ones are definitely climate change, just because you know rising temperatures are causing a lot of problems for our population since, first of all, turtles are ectotherms, so that means they need the warmth from the, the environment to actually stay alive, to, to keep a certain level of metabolic activity as well. And of course, the, the sex of sea turtles is actually determined by temperature. So that means with rising temperatures, we are overproducing females, as basic as that. And that is pretty much the thing that we can see globally. Then the other biggie is ocean pollution. That includes plastic pollution, but it also includes oil spills, it includes fertilizer and pesticide runoffs from you know our farming practices and diseases such as fever papilloma which is kind of a weird cancer disease that we have in sea turtles where they just grow these massive tumors on their soft tissues and it is seems to be caused by a virus that is similar to the human papilloma virus but it also is a virus that seems to be related to you know environmental pressures so it could be carriers of that virus in the population and nothing happens unless you have those environmental pressures that are actually triggering the virus. So it's a little bit like, you know, the herpes virus that, that, that produces the cold sores in humans. You know, you don't really you have it in your body, but nothing happens unless you get fever, you're getting stressed and all of that. And then of course, plastic pollution, ingestion, entanglements, a lot of horrible suffering just because of, of plastics. But then, of course, overexploitation is a problem as well in sea turtles. So people are still poaching eggs, they're mm-hmm. poaching meats, they're poaching animals for their, for their shell and for their skin. So that is definitely a thing in developing countries in Asia, in Africa, South America, Central America. And then, of course, fisheries. That's, that's the other biggie. So we are losing so many turtles due to incidental bycatch as well. So the industrial fisheries. It's mainly the culprit because they just don't use the 
the capturing techniques that will prevent bycatch. They are not checking their nets often enough that will prevent the death of a turtle that gets entangled. So it's, it's yeah. So I, it's really difficult. I don't, I really don't want to rank it because, you know, yeah. it, it all leads to death and suffering. So in terms of what people can do at home, can you give some recommendations that will help out sea turtles? Yeah, I mean, in general, it's really about lifestyle, right? So if you are combating climate change by your lifestyle, so that means if you're trying to reduce your carbon footprint, that means don't go by car so much, take a bike, don't eat so much red meats. That all helps already to, to, to combat climate change, which in turn will also help um, to reduce temperatures later on. Of course, I mean, the same thing with plastic. So, you know, plastic will end up in the ocean, no matter if you disposed of it correctly or not. It's just, we have too much plastic. We're overusing yeah. plastic, which is a substance that is meant to last for literally centuries. And we're using a lot of times for things that are only, you know, happening a few seconds or a few minutes. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a totally misuse of a material. And that means the only way is really reducing our plastic consumption if we want to be in any way or shape or form able to kind of stem the flood of plastic that we have in our environment. All that said, of course, I don't want to lie. I mean, the big polluters, carbon emission as well as plastic are, of course, the large companies. So yeah. it's also a lot of times about getting political. So try to get representatives in your government that will actually do something that will be in favor of regulations that will be, you know, regulating exactly those major polluters. And if not, I mean, at least as a consumer, you have a certain degree of control as well, because you do vote with your dollars, right? So if you go out and eat, if you go grocery shopping, spend your money in businesses or with businesses that actually do a good job of trying to make a difference and just don't support the ones that are not. So I think there is, you know... Sometimes I feel it's, we have so many issues and so many crises on our planet that I feel it's a little bit overwhelming. And I always try to give people at least the sense that they control at least a little part of it if they mm -hmm. do play their part, you know, and it's not just them. There's so many other people out there that are feeling the same thing and want to make a change. And I think if we're all coming together and do something that can definitely have a massive impact. And are you completely plastic free then? No, I'm not completely plastic free mm -hmm. because I'm sitting on my computer right now talking to you. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many other ways as a scientist, I cannot avoid plastic. And you know what? Sometimes I'm getting really frustrated with this idea that, you know, you have to be perfect. I, am, right. I think I'm pretty good compared to a lot of other people. So I have, you know, yeah, I usually don't, you know, don't do single use plastics per se. I have reduced my plastic consumption within my household by a lot. So if you look into like my cosmetic bag, most of the things are made from glass, for example, or I use shampoo bars and face soaps instead of, you know, using actual bottles, plastic bottles with stuff. I'm making my own cleaners, my own uh, toothpaste. So there's ways of how you can do it. But the thing is also, it's like, I know that it's not always that easy to do all of that, you have to have a little bit of time, at least in the beginning, to even figure out where you, for example, if you go grocery shopping, I mean, yes, there are plastic free options. There's paper, there's glass, there's aluminum, but you know, a lot of times you really kind of have to invest the time to figure out where you can get all those things first. And every time you move or you're in another country or you're traveling, it is really, really challenging 
to adhere to all of those rules if you set them for yourself. So for example, being back in the US right now, I'm super frustrated just because it's everywhere. And if, you, if you're not paying attention, you go into a restaurant and you forget to ask, please no straw, they will shove that straw into your face. Or you forget to ask, hey, is your, you know, they serve the Coke in a glass, but then the water comes in a plastic cup. And you're like, man, why didn't I ask if you bring it in a plastic or not? But it's really stressful if this is also not the main reason you went out to lunch. Maybe it's a business lunch, right? So your mind is always occupied with other things and might not be thinking just about plastics at that moment. So, yeah. So are you, I know you put the the video on YouTube to make an impact. Were you aware that it was going to make that much of an impact? Oh, you're talking about my straw video? Yeah, yeah. your straw video, the infinite well, straw no, video. I had no idea that would be, you know, such a, that will blow, be blowing up so much. I mean, I think we were shocked just because it was such a weird object to have found. And then also weird place because, I mean, you find turtles entangled and you find, you know, plastic in stomachs, but the nose was really a new thing. Interestingly though, now that we know it's a thing, people have started to check and it seems to be, it seems to be a thing. So because mm-hmm. of the way how turtles eat, it is that they usually, you know, take the, the, the prey into their mouth and before they swallow it, they expel the, the seawater and it goes, you know, from the mouth cavity through their nose out. Mm-hmm. And if there's some light object, such as a straw, it gets through the nose or get stuck in the nose. And so it was just a new thing for us. And we definitely wanted to show that to the world, but more or less to our you know, community of sea turtle people and friends and all the people that had heard us ranting already about you know, plastics per se. And it was never just about the straw. It was about you know, one symbolic item of plastic that we're all using. And it's just so much plastic out there. And that was just one more thing that we in a weird location. Yeah, I think that that's what really frustrates me about because there, there has been some backlash towards the, the no straw movement. And the backlash is that there are some people who have uh, disabilities and they may need to use uh, a plastic straw. And then others are like, well, plastic straws only make up like a small percentage of all the plastic waste. But you're right, it's a symbol. And also like, I always feel like the straw for most people is so unnecessary. Like you're right, you sit down in a restaurant and they just throw a straw at you. And even when I've asked for no straw, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, it's automatic, you know, cause that's the way we're trained. So it's really just about not like getting rid of every single straw in existence, but it's about just retraining the behavior to have the consumer ask for a straw or have metal straws or paper straws or something. Well, I also have to say it is mainly a problem in the US. So, you know, I've lived here while (laughs) all of that happened and now being out of the US, I'm just like, yeah, that's right. The rest of the world for some reason doesn't need straws for everything. So it's not such an issue, you know, because it's it's usually you don't get one in Germany, for example, unless you ask for one. It's just, you know, why would you give? Yeah. So it wasn't. uh, So in other countries, you pretty much sit down and you don't get a straw unless you ask for one. That's just the baseline. I'm trying to think of when I went out to eat other countries. Yeah, that's that makes sense. So, I mean, that's good. There's no change really there that's needed. It's just the U.S. and Americans don't like to be told what to do. So. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, the U.S. Is, is a huge country of conveniences, right? I always joke yeah. about that, you know, the best symbol is like, I don't even want to say any brands, but a famous coffee shop. So you're driving down like a four lane road and there is like no actual, you know, pass over. So you have to build it on both sides of the road just so it's convenient, <laughs> right? So nobody has to go onto the other side, God forbid. And I, I think it says so much about, you know, how fast, and of course they want you to consume, right? You are such a capitalistic country. Right. It's all about consumption and they want to con make you consume and fast. And so that means it needs to be quick and throw away so you can consume the next thing. And nobody needs to worry about washing up and cleaning up. So for that video, did you do anything to help make it go viral or did you just like put it on there and then like the world took over? Yeah, I don't know. If I would have the recipe of like go <laughs> viral, I think I could make a fortune. I do not. I have so many people asking me, it's like, so I would love this video to go viral. Can you help me? I was like, uh, no. It, I mean, it's just really about touching people at a certain level. I mean, that's yeah. really what it was about. We, we analyzed it so many times afterwards. You know, what was it about this particular video? Because if you, you know, Google on YouTube, there's so many rescue videos. And I think the only thing I can think of is really, it's all about the suffering of the turtle, right? It's, it's about a close-up of an animal that is in acute pain of an object that is so common. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. a straw. I mean, everybody has used straws before. So everybody maybe feels a little bit guilty as well looking at it. It's because it could have been your straw. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's also just an intelligent guess. Does that inspire you to make more videos then and, and like better, like, like more storytelling videos of pr with production and things like that? Well, it has inspired me, but it's not really that I have done it. So I'm a photographer mm -hmm. and have been a photographer for a while. So I haven't really used video a lot before that particular video. And I have tried to do a little bit more videos, but the thing is, though, I'm really a total... Like I haven't really had time to, to get into video um, editing or any of that. So I would really have to dive into that in order to, to, to do a better job because I think my standards are also pretty high, which is not great. Standing in my way sometimes from just like, because people just like put it out there. Just, you know, just don't edit, just put it out there because I have that's so what many, I do. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Good for you. I mean, yeah, I need to get over it. But also I feel I was so caught up in my PhD studies. I didn't really have time for any of that. So I feel now yeah. I have more time. Yeah, I worked at the museum and we had all these like perfectly produced videos. So I always thought that, that was what a YouTube video needed to be. And then I listened to a lot of bloggers and they're just like, content's more important than quality. So if you're giving away good information or you have something interesting to say, people will listen. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to just do one take, edit. A little bit chop off the beginning and the end and then throw it up on youtube and it works pretty well i'm surprised by some of the videos that people watch of mine I'm like, i can't believe they're watching that but why do you think people like sea turtles so much because usually when we think of the charismatic species they usually tend to be mammals and furry and cute and i think sea turtles are cute too but they're you know they're reptile and like it's just a non-mammal. So what do you think about them that makes them so attractive and, and likable? I don't, I don't have a definite answer, but I think <laughs> it is be probably because unlike other reptiles, first of all, they have a pretty cute face and they don't have this typical reptile eyes. Actually, I just had to think about that a few days ago when I went to, to the zoo with some kids. 
and they really freaked out about the crocodiles and I was like but they're kind of cute as well I mean and they were like no look at the eyes they look so evil and I was like hmm, I guess I don't know but yeah I think that might be the reason why that sea turtles don't have this you know reptile eyes but then again why is it sea turtles and not all the other tortoises I mean I personally find tortoises super cute but I guess a lot of other people don't yeah I did some research on kids' perceptions of animals and it's just, it's just really interesting, like why people like certain animals and, and why they don't. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, so, Nemo sorry, go ahead. probably helped as well, right? I mean, Crush in Nemo is a sea turtle. Yeah. So, you know, this kind of cute take on sea turtles. I mean, there's a lot of false information there as well, but definitely a cute animal that people can relate to. So what's the false information? Well, first of all, baby turtles don't stay with their dad. Actually, the dad is gone the moment he has deposited its sperm into the mother. And then it's just like, okay, goodbye. See you. Uh, Are we talking about Finding Nemo or is there a different yeah. movie? Okay, I'm no, trying no, to remember. I, I saw Finding Nemo a while ago, so I don't remember yeah, about dad together. Okay, sorry, but go ahead. What else is yeah, what so else dad is, is like traveling with his kids. So that's definitely not a thing. Yeah. And then the other thing is, of course, that they don't travel in groups. They're not social animals. So the only time they really meet up is when they're mating, right? So it's mm-hmm. not like family groups travel together. But it's, of course, a good idea that people like, <laughs> it worked. <laughs> but definitely false information, which I find interesting because Finding Nemo had a lot of other good information as well about the ocean. But that's definitely, that one was not that good. How do sea turtles find each other to mate? That is a good question, you know, and actually the initial uh, idea for my PhD was to look at, you know, certain pheromones or other substances that might be, you know, able to give kind of an olfaction signal, because I always wonder, you know what, you kind of swim in this vast ocean, and then you kind of have to meet up with, you know, not just a female and a male, but you also need to be in the right, in the right, you know, cycle. But I think it might be just a geographical thing. So it's kind of like, okay, let's meet in August, like in front of so-and-so beach. That's probably the easiest explanation. I I don't know. I don't think there is a definite answer to that. And I remember like, I guess close to 20 years now, 15 years when I was working at Animal Kingdom, they have, Disney has a beach resort, Vero Beach, and they do a lot of sea turtle work there. And I remember then like a big question is where do the juvenile sea turtles go? And so, you know, they're, they're babies, they, they hatch, they go to the ocean. And then I, at that time they tended to be caught, I think when they were like 20 or 30 years old and like nobody had any idea where they went or what was up with them for those 20 years. It has, has there been research on that since then? And can you update us? Yeah. So what, what you're describing are actually what we call the lost years. So from the time that a baby turtle enters the ocean and kind of, you know, drifts out into the, in the big, into the big ocean currents, but it grows up to a certain size and recruits back. We don't know much about it. I mean, we know like the basics, what I just told you, but you know, the real details, we are only starting to unravel. And actually one professor in Florida, Dr. Kate Mansfield, is pretty much the leading force behind a lot of tagging projects of, of baby uh, or juvenile turtles in the ocean currents. So what she found is of course just a piece of the puzzle. She hasn't of course found it all, but what she found out is it's not just that they you know, go out and swim in the, in the large currents, but they hide, for example, in the sargasm. So there's a big bunch of, of floating sargasm. It's a type of, of, of algae. And 
It is, first of all, creating an insulating layer. So mm -hmm. we talked already about that sea turtles are not able to regulate their own body temperatures because they're cold-blooded or ectotherm in, in, in the smart term. So that means in order to protect themselves probably from temperature fluctuations, the sargasm is perfect. Also, so sargasm attracts a bunch of other animals. So they have like this readily available food source right there and they have camouflage from predators. So, you know, they just kind of hide in the sargassum. They're invisible for most fish. They have the food right there. So that was a really cool discovery actually, because we didn't know how it really worked. You know, we, we knew, okay, there's ocean currents. We sometimes find those turtles in there. And then at a certain amount of time, we see them in coastal waters all of a sudden, right? So we, it's really difficult, for example, to say how old a turtle is because you can't just look at it and or take a blood sample and say, oh yeah, that turtle is like 14 years old or 45. So that turtle has to die and you take a part of the bone, the humerus bone to be exact, and then you look at the rings. So it's, it's similar to trees and temperate zones where you have rings for each year. And so you can estimate of what age that turtle died by the, you know, or how old it was when it died. And so that way, and some kind of, interesting tagging projects also led to the conclusion, okay, it takes about 20 to 45 years to reach sexual maturity for most species. Yeah. A long time. A long time. In a lot of places where sea turtles used to nest, there has since been development. And this actually, I got this question originally from Emily Ratzenkowski, I can't remember. She's a celebrity. She's that she's a model celebrity. And on her Instagram, she was holding a baby sea turtle. And it upset me because all sea turtles are threatened or endangered. And I thought it set a bad example. But then I learned that because of development on beaches, that a lot of places will actually dig up the nests and then the sea turtles will hatch in their facilities. And then like tourists will participate in their release back to the ocean once they're once they've hatched. Can you talk about those programs and like, do you think that it's, it's good for people to be engaged in that type of work? And, and what about putting pictures on social media? Yeah, the thing is, you know, the problem is always when those pictures are put yeah. on social media without context. So because there is a lot of bad programs out there, I'm going to say that just as it is, usually in developing countries, Asia is actually really known for that hotels keep baby turtles for extended times in little pools and then they give wow. against the donation like five dollars ten dollars one turtle baby per person so it can be released so this is against everything that you should be doing right so first of all baby sea turtles actually imprint on the on the beach that they're born we don't know which cues they're using but we're thinking it has something to do with them walking over the beach to the water and starting their swimming frenzy in the water so that means if you are taking that baby out of the nest and put it in a pool, you're probably either taking away entirely the cues or you're having them imprint on something that is not what they're supposed to be imprinting on. And it's necessary for them to return as adults to nest. So that the second thing is that baby sea turtles usually hatch in a large group because it is a certain amount of protection because they're tiny and everything that is able to swallow a baby sea turtle will do so pretty much. Mm -hmm. So that means there's birds, there's fish, it just waits for those babies to hatch. And so that means if you have, you know, if you kind of separate the groups and just like have one baby turtle that you're sending out into the vast ocean, the chances that this one baby turtle is eaten extremely big. 
So that's the other thing. And the third thing is, so the babies absorb their yolk back that has been nourishing them throughout the incubation by the time they are born. And that yolk back provides energy and nutrition for the first weeks up until they make it to those big ocean currents that I just talked mm -hmm. about. And they're able to start feeding. But if you keep them for like a week or longer in some swimming pool, then they're using up all that energy that they should have used to swim out into the ocean current. So, you know, there is a lot of stuff that people don't know about. But of course, I also know that, and I wouldn't say there's a lot of people actually that take the eggs and incubate it elsewhere. In fact, in the US, I really only know about Texas that does that for the chemistry and that has a very specific reason. And then those, those releases are made public usually, but it's not that it's, as far I know that people are actually allowed to hold a baby turtle. You know, first of all, also, I hope she wore gloves. <laughs> No. Because there's a lot of, you know, stuff that we carry as humans that we will, would, might be able to pass on to sea turtles, right? Let it be sunscreen or you've been smoking a cigarette or even worse things that are not very good for an endangered species to start with. So I love getting the public involved, but I think it should be under supervision and it should be not impeding kind of the natural behaviors mm -hmm. of, of baby turtles, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think this program was in Mexico and I posted about it on Twitter and another sea turtle biologist pointed out that's that some of those programs do good. So I was kind of caught some off guard. Of them, yes, some of them do. And, you know, you also have to, you know, and that is a really harsh kind of thing, but it kind of goes into a place into the whole thing with the zoos as well. Like, okay, yeah. this one turtle she held up was the ambassador for an entire population, entire species. So how many people were really excited about this and really maybe started reading up on sea turtles or started supporting a sea turtle project. So maybe that one turtle that was in her hand has led to a lot of positive impact, you know, for sea turtle populations worldwide. So sometimes I feel like vilifying sometimes, you know, things like that, uh, it's super difficult. I, I would wish that people would be way more aware, but a lot of times it's also ignorance. You know, they, of course, she probably listened to what somebody told her somewhere, but she probably didn't have enough yeah. information to provide. So then it was just what it was, right? When she published it. So if somebody sees a baby search sea turtle on the beach, like I did, what should they do? I'll tell you what I, I mean, I, I helped escort it to the ocean to make sure that, that nothing got it. But now I'm, now I realize it was probably someone else's food <laughs> since it didn't have all the other hatchlings, yeah. but what, what should somebody do? So if the turtle baby is actually walking, just let it walk. Make mm -hmm. sure that, you know, the crab's holes are all closed, that there's not too much driftwood in front. Just really make sure that nothing on the beach at least is able to get it. And just stay with it. Mm -hmm. Don't throw it in the water. That's, that's the one thing. If it's pretty active and doing good, don't throw it in the water. Of course, if you find a baby turtle that is more dead than alive on the beach, then the best thing would be to bring it to the next rescue center. Don't just throw it in the water. There might be something else wrong. It might have a heat, kind of a heat shock. You need to revive a little bit. And, and usually the best time to release baby turtles is really when there is not much sun on the beach. So either because it's raining or because the night has fallen or the day hasn't broken yet. So that is like the best times that you should release baby turtles. But yeah, usually, you know, People tend to always feel the more they do, the better it is. But sometimes it's really about just stepping back and making sure that nature can take its course and well, without the predators, <laughs> the natural ones. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, I just kind of let it happen. Just, they know mm -hmm. what to do. 
most of the time. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. They know what to do. So let them go and reduce your impact so they can do their thing. Thank you so much for being here. I had such a great time talking to you and I learned a ton more about sea turtles, especially the, the, the beach thing. I didn't know that it was so complicated. The question about doing these, these releases. I didn't, I didn't know that sea turtles got so much from those little eggs. (laughs) Yeah, that is definitely, but it was a pleasure nerding out about sea turtles. Thank you so much. If you liked this episode, care about wildlife, care about conservation, or know somebody who is interested in going into wildlife biology careers, please share this episode. You can also rate and review my podcast that really helps people find it. My goal is to spread messages of conservation and kindness for wildlife and to help people navigate wildlife biology careers. Rating and reviewing my podcast really helps other people find it. If you have questions or show ideas, you can find me at fancyscientist.com. My social media handles are at fancyscientist. On Instagram, there's an underscore between fancy and scientist. You can also send an email to hello at fancyscientist.com. If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, ecologist, or zoologist, you can join me every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Facebook Live, where I answer different career questions. You can also ask me questions on the spot. I'm here for you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I am so grateful for you. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other.